This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. So what happened to unions? We talk in another segment about why they seem to be making a comeback, but why did they start to fail? And it's a long list with a big labor pool of baby boomers, automation, corporations were able to easily replace strikers. So strikes held less power. There was competition from overseas where wages are low and authoritarian governments had no interest in workers' rights and online businesses, of course, which could come from who knows where. But there was also union corruption that made the case for corporations. Though only 1% of unions had scandals, they were headline making. And the biggest of them all were the Teamsters under Jimmy Hoffa. Even a Democratic administration, usually union-friendly under President John F. Kennedy, went all in on an investigation led by Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, who had originally made a name for himself as chief counsel for the Senate Rackets Committee, which his not-yet-president brother served on. RFK even rose to prominence with a bestseller about the Teamsters called The Enemy Within. And at the center of all of this was Jimmy Hoffa. An expert on the life and death of Jimmy Hoffa is investigative reporter Dan Moldea, whose many books have upset many people, including the NFL. And those books include the classic The Hoffa Wars. Dan, good to talk to you. How are you? Good talking to you, too. An excellent introduction. Thank you. Well, thank you. And an excellent introduction. If somebody you know buys The Hoffa Wars and opens it up, the first thing you read is, I love this line because <laughs> I know what I, you're no, going to read. Go ahead. Yeah. Nothing's going to get you into a book more than a line like this. Jimmy Hoffa's most valuable contribution to the American labor movement came at the moment he stopped breathing on July 30th, 1975. I started investigating Hoffa and the Teamsters while I was in grad school in December 1974, which was about eight months before Hoffa disappeared. And the way I got into this was that I was I was investigating the Teamsters and my sources were rank and file reformers within the Teamsters Union who were trying to root out the mafia guys who were corrupting their union. And these were very good union guys. These were uh, pro-union guys. These are guys who wanted to legitimize their union so that they could run an excellent union. And the irony about Jimmy Hoffa was that Hoffa grew up in Detroit 
as you know, Gil, and was in the same town as a great labor leader named Walter Ruther from the United Auto Workers Union. So while, while Walter Ruther was this great labor leader who ran this great union, Hoffa was, you know, a basically uh, became a mob stooge and went from potentially a great labor leader to really nothing more than a labor racketeer. But in that opening line, that was all about the federal government really wasn't investigating the Teamsters and the mafia to any great extent at that point, but it was the Hoffa murder that set it off. That's when they started to get very serious, once again, about investigating organized crime, union corruption, corruption in businesses and in management. And again, pick up the work that, as you mentioned, from 1957 to 1960, that's what this was all about. The the great contribution was the investigations that followed his murder. Give me a little background on, because this is ancient history for a lot of a lot of our listeners weren't even born during this. So give me a little history on how Hoffa rises to where he is, because this is a guy, he's the son of a Pennsylvania Dutch father who died when Hoffa was seven. Hoffa drops out of school when he's 14. He never was a trucker. How does he rise to the top of the Teamster? He was a warehouseman. He was a warehouseman, saw an opportunity to go into local 299. Uh, which was the Detroit local, which is his home local throughout his life. And he became an organizer with Local 299. And then he got a reputation as a guy who was fairly relentless. He was a warehouseman, once again, not a trucker. And he stood tall in some strikes, but there was a strike which he could not control. Denny Lewis, who was the brother of John L. Lewis, the head of the uh, so the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, before the merger with the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, Denny Lewis had tried to raid the Teamsters turf in Detroit and was stronger and tougher than Hoffa and his Teamsters. And so Hoffa needing support. And the myth is that Hoffa was using the mafia to go after hard and fast management people. But in fact, he was using the mafia to run Denny Lewis and the CIO Raiders out of Detroit. He went to the mafia, Santo Perón, Frank Coppola, for the specific purpose of driving the CIO Raiders out of Detroit so that Hoffa could take the Teamsters, the warehousemen, the truckers, without Denny Lewis and the influence of the CIO. The big wars were union against union, the Teamsters versus the CIO. Yeah, I mean, Hoffa starts out well. He tries to organize at a grocery chain that paid little and had substandard working conditions, no job security and and all of that. Uh, but there comes a point he's working with these locals, as you're talking about, many of which were mobbed control, where I guess he needed to decide whether he was going to play ball with gangsters um, and or or not have as powerful a union or become a part of organized crime. And he chose the latter. He chose organized crime. Like I said, he went from potentially being a great union leader to really nothing more than a labor racketeer. And it was that episode with Denny Lewis and the CIO Raiders in Detroit, which drove him to the mob, to Santo Perón, to Frank Coppola, and to others. And it was at that point that Hoffa became a captive of the mafia. I mean, the myth was that Hoffa operated independently. He didn't. He was always a stooge for the mob. And after the Kennedy Senate Rackets Committee did its job, and Hoffa was elected president of the Teamsters Union in 1957, the year the Senate Rackets Committee opened up, the AFL CIO, which by that point had merged, threw the Teamsters out of their labor organization because of Hoffa's election. And then the federal government placed the Teamsters in a trusteeship called the Board of Monitors, 
And that lasted until 1961 when Hoffa was reelected and he was able to get the yoke of the border monitors off him. But it simultaneously, he rewrote the union constitution to centralize power in his own hands and to be able to place renegade, rebellious locals in the trusteeship if they challenged his authority. The thing is, he's got to know that this can end badly. Maybe he didn't know that he would be killed, but uh, the Teamsters president who handpicked him for union vice president from where he rises to president was a guy named Dave Beck. Beck was famous in his day for pleading the fifth 140 times before the McClellan Rackets Committee and ended up in prison for fraud. That's how Hoffa becomes union president. But he's got to know the last guy who held the job ended up in the slammer, which which may have been the best thing for Beck because he lived to be 99. Maybe if he had stayed in that job, he'd be, you know, wherever Hoffa is. Well, Hoffa was also an informant <laughs> against Dave Beck. During the early parts of the Senate Rackets Committee, it was Hoffa trying to sabotage the guy who's above him so he could take his job. He started feeding information to the Senate Rackets Committee. At that point, Hoffa and the Bobby Kennedy staff were getting along. But it was later that the, as you know, the battle, the combat between Bobby Kennedy and Jimmy Hoffa became of mythical Shakespearean proportions. And these guys uh, ended up hating each other and dying very violent death. Yeah, yeah. Neither of them get to be old men. Um, Hoffa is finally imprisoned. What'd they finally get him for? He had been indicted on an extortion scheme, which would have probably yielded him little, if any, prison if he had just gone along with the program. But instead, he decided to tamper with the jury. And so the, the trial, the extortion trial in Nashville wound up as a jury tampering trial in Chattanooga in 1964, uh, while during the final days of Bobby Kennedy's tenure as attorney general after his brother had been murdered in November 1963, Kennedy wanted to stay as attorney general long enough to see Hoffa convicted of jury tampering, for which he received eight years in prison, and then convicted in Chicago of pension fraud, for which he received an additional five. So he he went to Lewisburg Penitentiary facing 13 years in prison. I think he did a little under five when Nixon commuted his prison sentence with the proviso that he not seek union office until 1980. Under those terms, Hoffa was released from prison, and then he tried to get rid of the the restrictions that Nixon had placed on his commutation. And then it was in the midst of his attempt to regain the power of the Teamsters Union, which he had been institutionally shut off from. There was no way that he could get it back. And he felt that he he was being double-crossed by Frank Fitzsimmons, who was his hand-picked successor. And the mafia had grown comfortable with Frank Fitzsimmons because unlike Hoffa, who had centralized all of the power in his own hands with his rewriting of the 1961 Constitution, Frank Fitzsimmons was more of a decentralist, and he started decentralizing power down to the uh, 13, 14, 15, 16 vice presidents on the general executive board. And people like this more relaxed view of how the Teamsters were being run because the mafia had more influence then. But it was in the midst of that that Hoffa was trying to regain his power. And in the midst of that, once again, uh, on July 30th, 1975, he vanished and was murdered at the behest of, you know, the mafia, a decision made by the mafia. We'll have more with investigative reporter Dan Moldea. You're listening to the Labor Day Special from CBS News Radio.
We have more now on the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we continue our talk with investigative reporter Dan Moldea. You think of um, the political party that's pro-union, you think of Democrats, you think of the political party that's anti-union, you think of Republicans. Of course, there's exceptions in both, but but still, by and large, that's that's the thing. Dave Beck, who we mentioned before, who ends up going to prison, is pardoned by Gerald Ford. Um, a conservative Republican at that time, much more conservative than he was to become when uh, when he got older. Richard Nixon commuted Hoffa's sentence after he served only five years of a 13-year sentence. What was going on there? Frank Fitzsimmons was very close to Richard Nixon. The Teamsters pretty much were renegades. I mean, there was no way that Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters were going to support John Kennedy uh, for President of the United States in 1960. They supported Richard Nixon. In fact, they contributed about a quarter million dollars to his campaign. And then in 1972, in order to set this up, the, the endorsement of the Teamsters, Richard Nixon gave the commutation with the restrictions to Hoffa on December 23, 1971. And he believed that would set up the scenario where the Teamsters would endorse Nixon for his bid for re-election in 1972, which they did. And the odds of him coming back and running the Teamsters with the uh, with Fitzsimmons, the union president, and the mob against him at this point were almost nil. If that's true, why kill him? Well, the situation was one in which it was not only the commutation restrictions that he was dealing with. The Remember, uh, Hoffa had rewritten the Constitution in 1961, sent, uh, centralizing power in his own hands, and that power allowed him to send renegade, rebellious locals into trusteeship. The members would elect their officers. The officers would become delegates to the convention, and it was the delegates at the convention who elected the general executive board, including the general president. So in order for Hoffa to regain the Teamsters Union, he had to become a local union officer. So Hoffa was X'd out by the law of the commutation restriction, and he was X'd out by Fitzsimmons, ability and power to throw local 299 into trusteeship if somehow Hoffa became a local officer. So as a consequence, seeing everybody going against him, Hoffa decided to start informing. While he was in prison, one of his fellow inmates was gangster and former Teamster official Tony Provenzano. And apparently they had gotten into a feud in prison, which was probably a bad idea. There was this fight between Tony Provenzano and Jimmy Hoffa in the dining room at Lewisburg Penitentiary. And um, they had a blood feud that went on for some time. The The key government informant on the Hoffa murder was a guy named Ralph Picardo, who was a member of the Provenzano crew. And while he was in the joint, uh, he was visited by a guy named Steve Andretta, who allegedly, a, a week after Hoffa disappeared, gave Picardo the details as to what happened to Hoffa. And so... In November, on November 4th, 1975, Picardo has his first interview with Bob Garrity, who was the lead FBI agent on the case out of Detroit, during which time Ralph Picardo said that Hoffa was stuffed into a 55-gallon drum, loaded onto a gateway transportation truck, and then sent to an unknown destination. When the FBI put his feet to the fire and said, where do you think he wound up? His response was he wound up in New Jersey at a place called Brother Moscato's Dump which was a, a toxic waste dump in Jersey City under the Pulaski Skyway, the bridge that connected Jersey City with Newark. And uh, it was a toxic waste dump filled with quicksand and, and rats and wild dogs. And, and it was hell on earth. And that's where Ricardo claimed that Hoffa had wound up. Years later, I was investigating a crooked judge down in Florida 
who was allegedly receiving payoffs from mafia guys. And I received documents that showed that the payoff man was Brother Moscato, this Genovese mafia soldier who had been not only, you know, paying off Elsie Hastings, the, the, the judge in the case, who was later impeached uh, by the U.S. House of Representatives, convicted by the Senate, and was thrown off the bench. But then he ran for Congress and spent 16 terms in Congress uh, until he died a few years ago. I, I called Moscato up when I heard about this, and I said, may I come and speak to you? He said, yeah, it was very nice. And so I went up to see this mafia guy. And we had a very pleasant conversation, during which time I said, you know, the first time I heard about you was Brother Moscato's dump from Ralph Ricardo. And he said, yeah, yeah, you wrote that book, The Hoffa Wars, right? And I said, yeah. I said, so well, tell me what happened. He said, well, Picardo basically had it right. I said, excuse me? He goes, yeah. Now, I had interviewed Moscato, this mafia guy, from 2007, April 2007, until about January 2014, the month before he died. And during that period of time, he was giving me information with the frequency that a kosher butcher sells pork chops. <laughs> Hoffa was picked up at the Red Fox by a guy named Tony Giacalone, Tony Giacalone's brother, Vito Giacalone. Vito Giacalone was driving the car that picked up Hoffa. Hoffa was scheduled to meet that at, that day with Tony Giacalone, a Detroit Mafia guy, and with Tony Provenzano, the guy you mentioned who had the fight with Hoffa at Lewisburg, as well as a third man, a, a local businessman connected to Giacalone named Lenny Schultz. Uh, according to Moscato, after Vito Giacalone picked up Hoffa, they drove him to uh, a location which he did not know, but he said, yes, it was, in fact, Sal Bergoglio who did the murder. They did stuff him in a 55-gallon drum. They put him in a gateway transportation truck, and Moscato confirmed that they had buried the body in his dump in Jersey City. Moscato died February 16th, uh, 2014, and I told him I wasn't going to do anything until after he was gone. I had all this stuff recorded. And so on for the 40th anniversary of Hoffa's murder on July 30th, 2015, I wrote my story about this. The New York Daily News did a big deal about it, and then we, we moved on from there. For people who are wondering why were mobsters so interested in having control of a union? It was the millions and millions and millions in the pension fund. And I, and I think, and Moscato did tell me when I was trying to get motive out of him, he did tell me it was a little more complicated than you guys think it is. In other words, it wasn't just about Hoffa was informing. It was about more than that. And there was a very specific set of loans that he sort of guided me to, or sorry, led me to. And I've been investigating that. And, and, and had, much of that has been corroborated by a strike force prosecutor from the DOJ, from the Department of Justice, who told me that, that this was what the government believed was the actual motive for Hoffa's murder. And so I'm, I'm Ahab and the Hoffa case is my white whale. I mean, I've written 10 books, only one of which is about Hoffa, but I can't get this thing out of my system. And I still believe I know where he is and I still believe I can find him. But that, uh, that, remains, to be, that remains to be proven. My first attempt to do it last year in June of, of, of uh, 2022, uh, the FBI got a search warrant based on my information. And sadly, they found nothing. But there's a contention here. It wasn't The FBI was doing its job and everything else, but we believe there was a miscommunication between field offices in Detroit and Newark. And we believe that they missed the spot that we gave them. So we're trying to get them to go back and redo, do a redo here. This is a real feather in their cap because I'm, I'm pig, the information I have is piggybacking on what their source, Ralph Picardo, said in uh, 1975. And this is going to be a, a big deal for the FBI. In fact, this is true. And really all I want for all I've done is for my team and I 
to get a very generous assist. But speaking of all of that, I still believe that labor unions are the are the social conscience of all great societies. Um, and I believe that when unions do well, it rises up all ships and everyone else does as well. As, even though, from what I understand, only 10% of the workforce these days are members of unions. And so I'm, I'm happy that to see that the Gallup poll shows that 71% of the American public supports unions. And I'm, and I'm glad to see that Joe Biden has determined that he's going to be the greatest pro-union president of all time. And I think a lot of that is being done right now. And I, I'm optimistic about what's what's going to be happening in the labor movement in the coming years. Uh, I wish I was optimistic, as optimistic about politics as, as I am about the union movement. Well, let's let's put a ribbon on this and and get to you know the point of us coming back to all of this to the point for unions today that are making this big comeback what did the teamsters corruption and the suspected hoffa murder do for the image of unions in in america almost hard to believe that's almost half a century ago it is it, it, when i think that i started investigating hoffa and the teamsters 49 years ago you know, I just have to shake my head. But what did it do for the labor movement? It was very bad. It was it was very bad. It, it, it sort of smeared all of labor, even the good unions like the United Auto Workers Union. And as a consequence of that, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, there was a lot of misunderstanding. But it was the federal government. Jimmy Carter became president in 1976. Excuse me, 1977. He was elected in 76, 77. He uh, took office. And he appointed, you know, a not such a good attorney general, and there was not such a good FBI director at the time. But midterm, Jimmy Carter appointed a guy named Benjamin Civiletti as his attorney general, who became a great investigator of organized crime in 1978. And then he appointed a guy named William Webster, a respected judge out of uh, St. Louis, uh, who, um, who became a great FBI director. And he started these sting operations like Abscam, Brylab, Pendorf. My porn, a straw man, these FBI investigations, which really focused on the institutionalization of the mafia in the fabric of American life. And there was some real work done during that period of time. And then Jimmy Carter was defeated. Ronald Reagan came in. I wrote a book about, as you know, uh, I wrote a book about Ronald Reagan and the Hollywood mafia. And that's a that's a completely different story. Well, all to be told for people who want to go back to where this begins, the Hoffa Wars reads like it was written yesterday. Dan Moldea has been investigating ever since and so many other things in his 10 books. Dan, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you, Gil. A pleasure to talk to you again. You're listening to the Labor Day Special from CBS News Radio. This is the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Two strikes made big news this summer, that of the Writers Guild against producers of TV shows and films, and a very similar strike by SAG-AFTRA. And the reason we wanted to take a look at this particular labor issue is that it deals not only with a product that we all consume, but issues such as artificial intelligence, which are of concern to many workers in many fields. Now, before we do that, some upfront disclosures. As with many of the people you hear on the radio or CMTV, I am a member of SAG-AFTRA and have been since 1971. Wait, 1971? Good thing I've turned to Shakespeare these days. No shortage of old kings like Lear and old busybodies like Polonius. I can do this special because the broadcast contract is not part of the strike, but I should further disclose to you that that was indeed me on the picket line. So, 
With those disclosures, we go on to the interview with SAG-AFTRA National Executive Director and Chief Negotiator, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland. Duncan, good to have you with us. Thanks so much, Gil, and appreciate you being out on the picket line very much. Well, you know, I kind of chickened out. I was in the sunny section in front on Melrose, and after uh, dying in the heat, I moved over to the very nice shady section in Gower. So I, I, you know... I don't get 100% credit on that. So, Duncan, just to get one misconception out of the way, people think this is a strike by very rich people who want to get richer because the stars they know are the stars. But if you drive by a picket line, the odds are 95% of the people you will see are people that you won't recognize. These are these are working or hope to be working people who make up the large part of the union. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, you know, it is obviously one of the the benefits of being SAG-AFTRA and having the members that we do, that we have some members who can really help put our message out, uh, have public platforms that have a lot of people paying attention to them. But the people this strike is really about are working performers. Uh, they are the people you'll see out on the picket lines. These are people who are fighting to make their health insurance every year. And by the way, that's just $26,470 in earnings in a year. The vast majority of our members do not make enough money in a year to earn that health insurance coverage. So we're talking about working people who are really trying to pay the bills, pay the rent, keep the lights on, take care of their families. And that's why these the economic fairness part of our proposals of our agenda is so essential. And frankly, it's one that really resonates with, I think, the, the working people of this country, uh, you know, in general. Yeah, there's, there's an old joke. I think Wendy Wasserstein wrote it for one of her plays where there's a two women at a restaurant and one of them wants to order and one of them yells actress because that's the business. I mean, the vast majority of the people in the union are people who are, they're not stars. They're not people you recognize. They're the people who in the movie you saw or the TV show you saw, you know, played the cashier who went, thank you, here's your change. Yeah. And, you know, that means that this strike is really hurting them, right? I mean, them being out of work really hurts. They don't have deep financial reserves to weather a strike, just like the crew members don't. Uh, the writers don't necessarily either. But the fact of the matter is they also know this strike is about their ability to have a career in the future, their ability to make a living, their ability to make sure they're protected from having their persona stolen through AI technology. I mean, these are issues that are absolutely existential. And that's why our members are so scrappy and they are willing to be out there on the picket lines and do what it takes to make sure that these companies step up and make a fair deal. Let's talk about AI because it affects so many people beyond actors and actresses and writers, the rights to your very face has come up with AI. Some actors are being asked to have their faces scanned so they can be used in future films without necessarily knowing or being notified or being paid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not just their face, their whole body, uh, their voice, even for voiceover performers who may not be on camera They're, you know, that's actually one of the sort of tip of the spear areas is in voiceover work because the technology is a little more advanced uh, in the voice area and being able to synthesize voices and replicate them. So this is something that the AI issue applies to all of our members from background actors up to the biggest A-listers. Everybody is affected by AI because the way this industry implements it is going to really change the future. And we've got to make sure it's implemented in a way that's respectful of our members. And that's really human-centered. List people up instead of tearing them down. Uh, right now, the TV show Suits, which was on the uh, USA Network for you know nine seasons, um, is has all of a sudden become spectacularly popular 
on Netflix. I mean, people, and I think one episode, one season on uh, Peacock. And millions of people are watching this thing now. And they must be thinking, wow, these people must be raking it in. And it's kind of like, yeah, no, they're not. Right, because the residuals formulas, especially for use on streaming, um, really don't provide the kind of compensation that people might imagine from days gone by in terms of network television, network television reruns, and certain shows that people know the cast members have just gotten, you know, treated very fairly, let's say. That's not necessarily the case for shows showing up on streaming. And that's one of the reasons why we're fighting for a piece of the revenue from the streaming platform for our members and that it should be based on the success of the projects that they're in because it doesn't really feel right to be the face of one of the most successful projects in the world of streaming and to be getting paid as though you're, you know, you're on the least successful project that's on their platform. Um, that doesn't really, that doesn't really work. And um, the, the streamers don't seem to want to change that because they just don't want to share the revenue. We'll have more with Duncan Crabtree Ireland after this break here on the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. We're back with more of the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we continue our conversation with SAG AFTRA National Executive Director and Chief Negotiator Duncan Crabtree Ireland. Streaming has changed a lot of things. When network TV started out, a hit show, and of course, most shows aren't hits, but still a hit show like I Love Lucy, would do 39 episodes a year. And instead of repeats, they would do summer shows. And that was 13 weeks of work for somebody. If you were lucky enough to get in a show, okay, that's a lot of work, even for a minor character. Now, even stars get maybe eight episodes. And of course, most people aren't stars, as we've already mentioned. So this is another issue for people. People see, you know, eight, 10 weeks of a series, and they think that's great. And uh, except for, you know, maybe one or two stars, most people aren't making that much money to make a living or to make the minimum to get vested in the health plan or the pension plan. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, I, I think where this falls into is when we're talking about how these companies have unilaterally changed the business model of this whole business. They've done it by chasing after the streaming model that's been pioneered by Netflix, but has been adopted by others. Um, and and they have chosen that path. But what they haven't done is allowed the contracts for actors, writers, crew members, et cetera, to keep up with those changes in the industry. And it does not work to change your whole business model. But at the main, in the meanwhile, they were just going to keep you frozen in a 1990s era contract. If you're going to change the business model, if you're going to change how the business works and you have the right to do that, then we have the right to say our contracts have to evolve and keep up with that so that actors... And you know, performers of all types can have the possibility of having an actual career and not basically be fighting to just even stay alive in their, in their profession. Just as we're in the middle of something we don't completely get the impact of yet with AI, streaming is something else where it seems that maybe on all sides, something's going to have to give, except for Netflix financially. Streaming's been a disaster for most of these companies. Uh, savvy show business executives did not figure on what every grandma and grandpa in Iowa immediately figured out, which is, hey, I subscribe to a service, uh, watch all the shows I want on it, and then cut it. It's not sticky the way cable was. Or I wait till all the episodes have dropped for the show I want to see. I subscribe to the streaming service for 30 days and then I get rid of it again. And it seems something that, you know, the people in our business ha haven't quite gotten their arms around yet. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Uh, I think you're right about that. Although I will say also, I mean, obviously, Netflix is profitable. 
Warner Brothers Discovery, the Mac platform, is right on the cusp of becoming profitable. Um, actually, prior to merging their two platforms, the two platforms together, HBO Max and the Discovery Plus platform back in the first quarter of this year, uh, showed a profit, a $50 million profit in one quarter, plus like almost 1.6 million new subscribers. So I think we've got a couple of these companies now who are either profitable or about to be. And I guess I just would make the point, when you start a new business, you usually don't expect to be profitable on day one. It takes time to invest and to build a business before it starts turning a profit. And these streaming platforms are no different. They are going to turn a profit just as Netflix has. It's a matter of time. And yes, they'll have to tweak their special sauce to make sure it works right. But um, we have no doubt that they're going to. And one of the problems with the company's positions and this is a long-standing thing they do, which is they say, oh, well, let's wait. Well, you know, let's just wait. Let's wait another three years. Let's wait another six years. By then, maybe we'll be profitable. And then we'll talk to you about you know, sharing the revenue from this business. But the thing is, our members are the ones providing the content that are building this business. They are making an investment in this business by putting their sweat equity into it. And the fact of the matter is, it is time for these companies to recognize that and to start cutting them into the revenue that is being generated from their work. And I think until that mindset changes, until there becomes a culture of respect instead of disrespect in this industry, we're going to have uh, challenging labor relations. Yeah, and that respect was around in the early days of television. Television, of course, you know, lost money for years in the early years. A lot of the companies only survived because they had radio, which was incredibly popular back then. And one of the reasons Duma did not survive is they did not have radio, unlike ABC, NBC, and CBS. But people still got paid because the people who ran those companies um, just went, hey, this is going to make it, and we've we've got to pay people what they're worth, especially to get people to be willing to even do this. Yeah, and, and I, mean, I think I think that is that. And there's also just the fact that, that – in our society right now, I think we are we're having a change in culture in general. And perhaps it is on display more right now in the entertainment industry because of the writer's strike and our strike. But in general, in our society, I think workers are stepping up and saying, we do not have to just accept whatever the companies, these big corporations say. We also have power. We are going to speak out. We are going to step up and exercise our rights. And we've seen this not just in our industry, but the Starbucks workers, the Amazon workers, UPS you know, the, the hotel workers here in Los Angeles. I mean, there is, I think, a building movement in this area. And it's about time because um, workers have been far too docile and far too um, willing to just take whatever companies say to them for a while now. And it's time for the labor movement to really rise and help protect um, all of our workers. Before we leave, let me mention one other thing that people hear is an issue. I don't think, you know, they understand, they read about it. Most of the online newspaper accounts and such don't really explain it. And one of the issues is what's called self-tape auditions. Can you explain what that is and why that's an issue in this? Sure. Yeah. So prior to the pandemic, on rare occasions, or maybe not rare occasions, but it wasn't common, but it did happen where actors would be asked to, say, make their own audition video and submit it for a part. The norm before the pandemic was people would go in and they would do an audition in a casting director's office. And if it was put on tape, it'd be put on tape, but that would all happen in the casting director's space. During the pandemic, because of all of the restrictions and everything, the concept of people self-taping their auditions just ballooned. And at first you might think, oh, well, that sounds great. And it is true. Some of our members like self-tapes as an option. And there are various reasons why they can be good. But they took off in a way that was totally unregulated and frankly, a bit abusive. And so we've been trying to course correct that ever since because our members, number one, 
want to have the option of auditioning in person or at least in a, a virtual audition, like a Zoom type audition, so that they can have some interaction and get some feedback from whoever's running that audition and really give themselves some um, you know, indication of uh, how they could adjust the performance, et cetera. But the kinds of things that they've been asked to do in self-tape auditions are crazy. Like, you know, people have been asked to record dozens of pages of content for an audition. They've been asked to have multiple camera angles and develop a set as though they're putting on a production and be in costume. And they've even been asked to do things that are unsafe, like drive while auditioning. So um, the fact is this had to be reeled in. And it's something that's an important priority in this negotiation is to make sure that any kinds of self-tape auditions are done in a fair and reasonable manner and don't require members to spend hundreds of dollars to pursue a job. I mean, it's not right for someone who just is trying to get a job to have to spend their money to, uh, to make that happen. That, you know, a job, job interviews are not supposed to require that. And that should be just as true for actors in this industry. And by the way, for people listening and say, well, I, I see people on TV all the time, you know, driving cars while doing lines and, and all of that. And even on HGTV when they're driving around and stuff, boys and girls, even on HGTV, that car is being towed by another car. Yes, it is. It is really not safe to be driving down the street, talking to somebody else, you know, worrying about your performance instead of focusing on your driving. Yeah. Hil and uh, that's true for an audition, just like it's true for uh, an actual on-camera performance. Yes. Hillary and David are being towed around Toronto. They are <laughs> driving and talking about real estate, as much fun as the image is. All right. I think we've got an understanding and I, I will see how long this thing goes. Obviously, um, you know, I think everybody's getting to the point where they're hoping for a break, but uh, this this is a tough one. And um, a lot of the future of unions and all of that are demonstrated by some of the various issues in the SAG-AFTRA and the WGA strike. SAG-AFTRA National Executive Director and Chief Negotiator, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Gil. I really appreciate it. You're listening to the Labor Day Special from CBS News Radio. This is the Labor Day Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Let's hear it for labor. Workers, blue collar, white collar, no collar at all for the folks who do the hard physical labor that makes everything else possible. We hear many reasons as to why people lose their jobs or why people are paid poorly. Automation, software, outsourcing. Rarely mentioned is the fact that we've actually structured things this way. I often tell the story of my introduction to business when I worked in a record store as a kid and saw employees stealing records left and right. I told the bosses employees were stealing them blind. That was actually literal because one day I came in and found the Venetian blinds covering the bathroom window were gone as well. He told me, he knew. I said, well, if you paid your people more, maybe they wouldn't steal. And he said, you know, I'm insured against theft. I'm not insured for paying more. But I've learned other lessons over the years. Laws make it easy for various investment funds to come in and almost purposely destroy a business, looting it along the way, often for personal, not corporate gain. Once at a major network, I got to ask the CEO, who I was friendly with, why he was willing to sink millions into equipment, but nothing into people. And he said, look, Gil, Congress allows me to put equipment down as an asset, but people are a liability. Congress wants to reverse that. I'll get more people, less equipment. Because investors consider people a liability, Wall Street often wants to hear companies fire a lot of people. So at another major network, the CEO said he had to fire 5,000 people to make Wall Street happy. One of them was my producer. I argued I could not do without a producer, and the CEO said he knew that, and fired the producer, 
then immediately rehired him as an independent contractor and gave him a raise big enough to cover his health care. It actually cost the company more money to do it that way. But technically, and as far as Wall Street was concerned, he was fired and disappeared from the corporate headcount. Absolutely nothing really changed. The company was actually out even more money, but Wall Street was happy and the stock went up. So did corporate expenses for smoke and mirrors. The food for thought here is that many of the ways we deal with labor and wages have little to do with the wages and even less with the value of the labor. The employees consider tax liabilities are the ones that do the selling, come up with new ideas, do customer retention that long waits listening to hold music lose. In other words, there are outmoded ways of classifying and regarding labor that's actually costing us productivity, as well as having a workforce that can make enough money to be consumers. Some companies actually do pay more than competitors because they found they not only attracted the best employees, but though wage spending seemed higher, retraining costs dropped by more than the extra wages cost them. And company loyalty was higher, making people more productive and more willing to go the extra effort under the very sort of circumstances we have now. Now, does that always work? No. I mean, if the robots can put together a car quicker and just as well as humans, there's not much to be done, except to make sure you're paying a good wage to the folks maintaining the robots. You also can't protect outmoded jobs. You don't need a blacksmith at a Plymouth dealer. Well, it turned out you also didn't need a Plymouth dealer. That all said, though, there is reason to celebrate labor today. The technological advances that gave America its leadership in so many things was born of the people who thought those things up and put them into action and sold them to other people. Sure, you can depreciate a machine, but you can also appreciate a worker. And the tax and investment laws that say you can't might need to get a good going over from people. You're listening to the Labor Day special from CBS News Radio. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.